Hello, everyone, and welcome to TalkBD Live. Uh, TalkBD Live is a series of live stream panels and discussions, all related to the topic of bipolar disorders. Today, we have an exciting panel and discussion for you entitled Bipolar 101. Today will be all about gaining some fundamental understanding of bipolar disorders and their self-management. Before we start, some introductions. So my name is Stephen Barnes, and I'm the Deputy Lead of CRESPD and an Associate Professor of Teaching and Psychology at the University of British Columbia and I live with bipolar disorder. I'm also the moderator for today's discussion and Q&A. Uh, next, over to you, Emma, for an intro. Thanks, Stephen. Um, it's a little bit different for me to be on this side of the panel. I've normally been sitting in your chair. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Emma Morton. I'm a psychologist and postdoctoral fellow working at the University of British Columbia. Uh, and I've been with CRESPD uh, ever since my PhD um, way back in Australia. Uh, and I'm really excited to be talking today about some of the um, uh, fundamentals of bipolar disorder diagnosis and treatment. Thanks, Emma. And Victoria. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, nice to have you hosting. Uh, <laughs> I'm Victoria Maxwell. Um, you're probably familiar with me if you've joined us before. Uh, I live with bipolar disorder, anxiety, and psychosis. Uh, and uh, I'm a core member of CRESPD as a peer researcher. Uh, and then uh, outside of that, I'm a keynote speaker and a uh, educator around mental illness, uh, speaking from personal lived experience. I'm known for my uh, one-person shows. And I'm really excited to be here to sort of get a bit of a refresher on uh, the basics of uh, BD. So thanks. Thanks, Victoria. Uh, so before we start with this discussion, uh, I just want to do a few bits of housekeeping. Uh, so just a reminder that this event is live and it's streaming on Zoom and YouTube. Um, the first 20 to 30 minutes of today's discussion will be a discussion and then we'll have time for a Q&A about 20 and 30 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes as well. And you can submit your questions at, at any time via the Zoom Q&A box or via chat. You can also use the www.talkbdlive um, text box to also submit questions, or you can do this in the YouTube chat as well. And all links that will be shared during this event uh, and resources will be made available to you via our event toolkit. And the link to that event toolkit will be placed in the chat from time to time for you. And just a quick word before we begin, there's obviously a lot more to understanding bipolar disorder than we can cover in just one hour. Uh, which is why we're spreading this session out into a second session uh, called Bipolar 102. Uh, and that will be live on April 12th. Now I'm going to hand it over to Emma and Victoria. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, so first off, I want to give credit where it's due. Um, a member of our community advisory group wrote us a, a message after one of the talk meetings that we did earlier this year and said, you know, you're doing all of these topics on really specific things like money and um, family relationships and, and what I think might really be important is having a bit of a, a basic overview of what bipolar disorder actually is and um, uh, what the symptoms are, what treatment involves um, for somebody who's a, a little bit new to starting their self-management journey or somebody who wants to support a, a loved one. Um, so in the spirit of that kind of uh, introductory course that you might take at college, uh, we thought maybe we'll do a Bipolar 101, um, where we kind of talk about some of these, these fundamentals. Um, it's kind of a, a friendly introduction to things you might want to know, or like Victoria said, get a refresher on. 
um, because often the a diagnosis can be given at a really challenging time in a person's life. Um, and we know that troubles with memory and thinking can also happen when you're having a mood episode. So uh, it can be a bit overwhelming to be given the sheet of paper that says you've got a bipolar disorder diagnosis and not really know what to make of that or where to go from there. Um, so to start, I wanted to quickly go over what bipolar disorder actually means in terms of a diagnosis. Uh, and some of you might have heard of the clinical Bible uh, that we call the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, and this describes various changes to mood, behavior, and thinking that seem to reliably occur together under various presentations that we call the, the bipolar spectrum. Now, for the interest of time, I don't want to get too stuck into some of the, the controversies and limitations associated with that system. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that it's, it's a descriptive guide that a clinician like myself might use to um, uh, figure out what kind of mental health difficulties a person might be experiencing and um, help me pick what treatments the research shows are the most effective um, for them. Uh, so when it comes to uh, bipolar disorder, the DSM differentiates that from other kinds of mood disorders on the basis of um, symptoms of mania or hypermania. Uh, and mania is this one week period of euphoric or irritable mood, as well as an increase to energy and activity levels. Uh, and common symptoms might be increased self-esteem, being extremely talkative, um, decreased need for sleep, so sleeping less and not feeling tired, um, racing thoughts, distractibility, uh, excessive energy involvement in goal-directed activity, um, and doing things that might be out of character or dangerous for a person, like um, spending sprees or um, sexual activity that you'd normally not feel okay with. Uh, I also want to mention that it's not uncommon to feel disconnected from reality during mania. Um, so psychosis involves the experience of hallucinations or um, delusions, and we know that up to 70% of people with a history of mania have, have experienced that. Um, hypermanic episodes are by definition less intense and briefer. Uh, they last four days instead of a week uh, and the impacts on functioning are less severe. Um, but that doesn't mean that people don't find those symptoms um, distressing or disruptive to their lives. Um, and on the flip side, we have depression, which would be a period of at least two weeks where a person feels persistently sad or low, um, is no longer interested in or enjoying their usual activities. Um, and other symptoms are changes to appetite and weight, sleep disturbances, um, changes to physical activity levels. So somebody might feel slowed down, like they're moving with wet clothes on um, or feel restless and jittery. Um, people often feel fatigued and lacking in energy and have difficulties thinking and concentrating uh, and may have thoughts about death or self-harm. Um, and in really serious depressive states as well, like mania, some people can also experience um, psychosis. Uh, one thing that I do want to note that you might not know based on the, uh, um, the focus on mania that this diagnostic system has is that it's actually a lot more common to experience symptoms of depression. Um, so one study showed that people with bipolar disorder experience a low mood between 30 to 50% of the time as compared to only 10% of the time uh, with mania or hypermania. Uh, there's a lot more complexity to this, this diagnostic spectrum than I can adequately cover today. Um, 
while I don't have time to describe all of the different kinds of bipolar spectrum diagnoses, um, we've included a link to a summary of these in the resources. Um, so if you're feeling uncertain about whether uh, this diagnosis is appropriate for you, it can be helpful to read a guide like this or to ask your healthcare provider to describe in more detail why they've used this particular label to um, describe your experiences. Uh, and Victoria, I wanted to ask if there's anything you wanted to add here about your experiences of that diagnostic process. Yeah, um, and can you hear me all right? I know there was a bit of problem. Okay, great. Um, I, I guess the one thing that I can definitely relate to, unfortunately, is uh, the stat around depression more than mania, um, that that's what I certainly has, have experienced a lot more of. Um, and then also because oftentimes depression is coupled with anxiety, that's one thing that I have really experienced as well. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so I've, and I've actually found it much easier to manage mania to prevent it or to manage it when it happens versus uh, depression. And um, yeah, and so I guess, you know, I'm a, a textbook uh, case in some ways around that. So yeah, I relate to all the things that you've just said. That's a really good point, Victoria. I think I read um, about uh, over half of people with bipolar disorder also have um, what we call comorbid issues um, with anxiety, sometimes um, difficulties with using particular substances. So even though those aren't necessarily a symptom of bipolar disorder itself, they commonly occur at the same time. So it's, it's quite a, um, there's a lot going on for people to um, manage. Uh, but one of the takeaways that I really hope people have from this session is that um, there are treatments which can help people stay well for longer um, and reduce the intensity of these mood episodes if they do occur. Um, yeah, and I was going to say that, and as I've had more, ironically, the more experience that I had with these episodes, the more experienced I had understanding what worked for me in particular. So, and I think that's something that we'll get into in the second session around management and stuff, so yeah. Thank you. Um, so we've covered a fair bit about uh, medication in a, our last session, our last Talk BD session, uh, which was really fantastic. And so I won't spend too much time talking about that today. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that taking medication to either reduce the intensity of acute episodes or um, to prevent future episodes is uh, probably a pretty important treatment strategy for most people. Uh, and we have included some information on that in our resources pack. Um, so what I think we were going to spend a bit of time talking about today is psychological treatments for bipolar disorder, which includes self-management because the ultimate goal of um, psychological therapy is not to stay in therapy forever, it's to give somebody the skills to self-manage their own condition. Uh, and psychological treatments for bipolar disorder are actually fairly recent in terms of the, the history of their development and research. Um, early clinical trials of the medication lithium were kind of so promising uh, that a lot of researchers kind of threw up their hands and said, well, this is completely manageable by medication. We don't need to look at these other things, but we know now that that's not really the case um, and that uh, psychotherapy has a lot of added benefits to medication. 
uh, I was just reading today a systematic review that was conducted in uh, 2020 showed that over 20 different comparison trials, people who were taking um, medication in addition to psychotherapy had a longer time between mood episodes than people who were just taking medication um, alone. Um, so it's actually really important to have both of these uh, strategies in your toolkit um, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, medication firstly is important because um, you need to be uh, at a particular level of stability in your mood to actually kind of have the energy and attention to engage in therapy. Um, uh, and as we talked about in the last talk BD session, it can take a while to find the right medication for you. Um, so you do need some backup strategies to help at times when you're changing your medications. Um, if you have to stop taking medications for particular reasons like um, getting pregnant, um, or also, you know, it's really natural to forget sometimes or not be interested in taking medication. Um, and so it's useful to have some, some tools for those times. Um, unfortunately, we do know that people can still experience breakthrough episodes when they are taking medication. So having these, uh, these tools can help you um, better manage those if they occur or have some other things that you can do to watch out for and prevent those. Um, such as knowing your triggers um, and coming up with an early warning um, plan, an intervention plan, which we'll talk about today and in our next session. Um, and also these psychological strategies can help you uh, detect changes in your mood that might indicate you need to change medication um, or um, that you, you might be um, in need of some uh, additional support. Um, and, and finally, even if your symptoms are really well controlled with medication, there are other impacts to your quality of life um, that can be addressed through uh, therapy and self-management. Um, so for example, counseling can help deal with relationship problems that might've occurred as a result of um, symptoms. Um, and uh, seeing a therapist can also help you uh, adjust to the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Um, so all of these things are part of a really well-rounded um, treatment plan. And Victoria, I know that you have some, this really beautiful metaphor of how all these things fit in together with you. And I was tempted to steal it, but I didn't. So I really wanna hand it over to you to talk about that. Uh, are you talking about the mobile, I think? Yeah, so uh, I really see that all the, the coping tools are about sort of like a, a mobile so that all of them uh, work together to create sort of a certain balance. Um, and so if I'm only using medication, um, it means that it's sort of going to be hanging low in this one area and out of sync with all these other ones. So, um, and I certainly have found that with therapy, it sort of gives me, um, uh, and, and the other metaphor probably is also the stool where there's sort of like three legs. So there can be all the things that I can do for self-management. There's the therapy, that's the other leg of the stool and then medication as well. Um, and if I don't have one of those elements, then my quality of life sort of can decrease as a result of that. And I've really found that therapy, um, it's sort of both medication, like you were saying, and, and therapy work um, really uh, sort of in an interwoven kind of way because in order for me to be able to engage in therapy really well, I need medication so I can stay stable in case I hit something like trauma. 
Um, and if I'm not working on interpersonal skills, uh, communication skills, stress management skills, things like that, um, then my ability to get well is compromised, regardless of how much medication I'm actually taking. Um, so I've really seen uh, for myself the benefit of when I've been able to combine all of those three things, self-management tools, medication, and therapy. And um, how did you find this? The you know you talk about a lot about this balance and the mobile and the, the stool, um, figuring out what what worked well for you. How did I find what worked well for me? Uh, trial and error often, um, and and also listening to other people like what other people were doing. So talking to other people about sort of uh, through support groups oftentimes. Um, so when I was first diagnosed. Um, speaking to other people that had been on the road to recovery a little bit further than I had. So understanding that exercise, as much as it was really difficult to make it consistent, um, has been really important. Sleep, really important. Um, and then also, I think, uh, hearing people recognizing that um, I didn't need to, uh, I, can, I could go with small steps, really small steps. Uh, and then finding the right therapist um, was also um, a big uh, portion. It was, I, I equate it to sort of, for those of you, for those of you who getting your hair styled is really important, it's like finding a good hairdresser. <laughs> so, uh, and, and you know how horrible it is when your hairdresser decides to move. <laughs> um, and so uh, I find that um, I was really fortunate that um, a couple of my psychiatrists actually did psychotherapy. So that actually made it affordable. And then um, most recently, I worked with someone on the mental health team uh, uh, in my local health authority. Um, and then the unfortunate thing is oftentimes therapy can be quite um, prohibitive uh, cost-wise if you don't have it covered or if you don't have a psychiatrist or a mental health team locally. Um, so yeah, so I think that's a lot of it. And finding out really just um, what works, trying things, experimenting, and, um, and then trying it for a period of time. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a good point that there are issues of, oh, my room's gone completely dark, sorry. <laughs> um, let me just turn that light on. I apologize. I think because I'm on campus, um, somebody's just- Charges drop? <laughs> the power. Um, mm -hmm. We can still hear you. We can still see you. <laughs> so it's fine. fine yeah. yeah, as I'm about to tell the scary story of healthcare inaccessibility, <laughs> the lights went out. <laughs> so um, I actually came here to avoid technical issues. Here we have one, but I'm just going to power through regardless, and I hope that's that's okay. Um, and hope that the rest of the lights, the the power doesn't go out. Um, but yeah, Victoria, I was thinking when you were saying about the uh, healthcare, uh, sorry, finding a good hairdresser, just like a, a good hairdresser, a good therapist is going to show you what they're doing and teach you how to do it yourself so you can try it uh, at home, um, which is uh, hopefully some of the self-management strategies that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so uh, there are a lot of different kinds of psychological therapies for bipolar disorder. 
Uh, and most common to them is teaching people the skills to identify and respond to mood episodes before they get so severe that they warrant, you know, an increase in medication or um, a potential hospitalization. We really want to get to um, helping people change that before it gets to that point. So we'll talk more about how you'll actually make an early intervention plan in our next talk BD session. Um, but the first step is to develop an awareness of your triggers and your early warning signs. Um, so a strategy that can help you identify your triggers, as well as things that have helped you throughout your experiences of mood episodes, is um, making a, what we call a life chart. Um, so to do this with a, a client in the course of therapy, I'd take out a big piece of paper and we'd mark a line across the middle. Um, and this is your timeline and it represents the point where uh, you're feeling okay, or what we call euthymic. You're still experiencing uh, changes in emotion and feelings, um, but nothing um, so severe. Um, and then we go across this timeline and mark out the periods of um, uh, times above the midline where you've had elevated mood and, and marks below it where you've had lowered mood and write down the approximate dates that these have occurred. Uh, and then below that, we'd write the major life events that have occurred at those same times on that, on that timeline. So we know from a lot of research and interviews with people who have bipolar disorder that there are some common life events that can trigger um, mood shifts. Uh, and these include the, the loss of a loved one, um, pregnancy and childbirth, um, and that's for partners of either gender because along with hormonal shifts, there's often, you know, changes to sleep. It's uh, quite a stressful time in people's life. Um, we also know that job and school related events, um, and that's both positive and negative things. So both getting a failure um, on an important assignment can trigger mood episode, as can getting a promotion um, or, you know, a, a job that you're really excited about. We'd also mark down important holidays, um, seasonal shifts and periods of, of substance use or um, other physical health conditions. Uh, and we'd also mark periods of treatment, um, what kinds of medication you might have been taking and any periods where you changed or stopped medications. Uh, and the goal of this is to be able to then go back over this timeline and look for patterns. Um, so you might get a better sense of the things, a common set of events that for you seem to set off mood episodes. So for example, you might notice that your um, manic episodes always occur in spring or summer, which is, is common for a lot of people. Other people notice that they tend to go into a depressive period where um, in winter. Um, you also might notice at times where you've got less sleep are followed by problematic mood changes. Um, or that a particular type of medication was associated with a, a longer period of stability. Um, so by doing this, hopefully, um, you can get a sense of triggers that you can avoid. Um, so for example, if substance use is really problematic, um, you maybe want to cut back on those, those substances. Um, but if it's a particular life event that seems to trigger it, um, hopefully you can start planning ahead for those times. So some people might notice that particular holidays like Thanksgiving or Christmas are really full on and stressful and seem to be followed by um, an increase in mood. So then you can start planning, um, what am I gonna do to put in place um, that will uh, help prevent this trigger from disrupting my stability too much? 
Um, and I wanted to ask Victoria if you had any experience of uh, trying that. Yeah, um, I, I probably I didn't ever do it uh, formally on uh, sort of the paper that you were talking about, um, but doing maybe a mood diary. And um, I definitely have noticed those correlations. So January and November are often when I'll start to see a dip in my mood. Um, and around Christmas time as well, sort of Christmas events uh, as well. Um, and when there's been really big shifts in either relationships or jobs, that's been another one, uh, or financial stress, that can be something. And whether that's an actual or perceived, because sometimes I can be quite anxious even when there's no reason to be anxious about the financial uh, situations. Um, and uh, what I and I hear what you're saying is that so then what I have learned to do is looking at those. Uh, stressors, what can I do to preempt uh, the symptoms? So for example, with the seasonal change, I use a light box, um, making sure that my sleep is, is right. Um, when it's to do with financial stress, making sure I'm on top of uh, my budget or looking at my savings or tracking it, things like that. So, yeah. That's, um, that's a really good point about, you know, the knowing the kinds of um, things that trigger you as well can kind of guide you to the, the kinds of self-management strategies that you might want to put in place. So if financial stress is a, is a big problem, then that might be an area that you can take to a, a therapist or um, a financial counselor even and say, I need some, some additional help with this. I want this to be the focus of our work together. So it actually really help you in terms of setting goals when you're working with somebody in a, in a clinical setting. Yeah, and, and one thing that um, I haven't mentioned and I don't think we have is the social support. So my primary relationship with my husband has been extremely important, um, particularly because he knows my um, signs and symptoms really well. So that's another um, added advantage if you live with someone or you have roommates or close family members, and then also a social network, um, just because it's great to just not always be focusing on symptoms and actually having some fun or even if you're depressed, just being around other people. Yeah, um, and you mentioned having somebody being aware of your um, signs and symptoms. So as well as triggers, we can also kind of um, plan ahead for noticing these small changes in mood and thinking and behavior that predate um, the more problematic dips into depression or mania. Um, so the other thing that I'd be doing with somebody in the really early stages of um, uh, adjusting to a bipolar diagnosis is trying to figure out what are your early warning signs. Um, so, you know, you might notice that before mania happens, you start getting more irritable and tense and snappy with the people close to you, or um, before a full episode of depression kicks off that you, you know, slowly start withdrawing and turning down more and more um, invitations. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about what you can actually do once you have this set of early warning signs identified in the next talk BD. Um, but knowing them is the first step to coming up with a plan for intervening early um, and hopefully stopping mood changes from um, becoming worse. Um, now, research shows that early warning signs vary a lot from person to person, um, but that most people have a kind of 
common um, what we'd call relapse prodrome, which is like an, an idiosyncratic set of signals that their mood might be changing in either direction. Um, so it's really important for the, the individual to um, look to, to reflect on um, before things got to that point, what did I notice? And, and one way that you can do this is to kind of work backwards from that list of symptoms in some of the resources that we shared. So, um, you know, uh, for example, a, a symptom that you might experience during depression is insomnia. Uh, you can kind of work backwards from that and say, what's the, the earliest sign that I have that my sleep is changing? Am I staying up later? Or am I waking up feeling less refreshed? Uh, and it's helpful to look at both your thinking and behavior because um, changes to behavior are often a lot easier to spot, especially if you're involving somebody else um, in, in picking up on that. Um, so we will, like I said, talk about that more next time, but Victoria, has there been anything particular for you that's been helpful in, in figuring out what your um, cues are? Uh, yeah. Uh Probably um, the biggest ones is um, around sleep and eating for myself, um, particularly with sleep, wanting to sleep a lot because I experience more depression. So really uh, noticing during the day, like at 11 a.m., I just want to go back to bed. And it's not necessarily, I mean, my, my body is fatigued. It's a different kind of fatigue than just being tired. It's a for those of you who have experienced clinical depression, you know what it is. It's like this albatross that's just covering like around your neck and your ankles um, and just a real desire just to escape. Um, so wanting to be under the covers. And then for me, um, so instead of uh, insomnia, it's oversleeping. And then the other one is uh, overeating. So a real craving for carbohydrates, something just to numb. So I'm sort of just distracting myself uh as well and the other is probably um my thinking where it's incredibly um uh hopeless and and pessimistic um and so where it's very narrow uh and i don't see much of a of a future and so it's sort of that meaninglessness that happens that goes along with depression and then for mania it's sort of the flip side where i'm not sleeping i'm not eating uh, and, uh, I probably have goals that I, you know, they go from zero to 500 <laughs> instead of goals that go from one to, oh, let's take a look at that. Maybe, you know, going, you know, writing a book in three weeks isn't actually that realistic. <laughs> so those are some of the things that I've learned over the past, I guess, few years. That's perfect. Um, and so then I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into next time um, what some of the things that we might do when we spot those changes um, might be. Thanks for that great discussion, Emma, Victoria. That was very insightful and I must hand it to Emma. I've dealt with many things giving lectures and talks, but I've never dealt with the power going on. <laughs> I'm just glad your computer didn't go <laughs> with us. Um, so I, I've gotten a lot of questions uh, from the audience, and we have a we have a list of them growing here. And, and thank you to everyone who has posted questions. The first one I have is actually a, a, it's a really important one that I've I've struggled with over the years with other people. Um, so I mean, it's posed to both of you. So whoever feels comfortable at handling this. Uh, so the question goes: um, I believe that I'm a family member has bipolar disorder, but I'm not sure how to approach the topic with them. I feel that they might not respond well to the suggestion that they need help. 
you have any suggestions for this person? It's a tough one, I know. Um, yeah, that's a, a really important one. And, um, uh, you know, and I'll obviously be really interested, Victoria, in, in your perspective. Um, I think one of the things that can be helpful um, is approaching people um, with an invitation to talk about it, um, a kind of gentle reflection on some of the things that you've noticed, um, and that uh, kind of exploring whether or not that person would be open to um, at least talking to someone about it with you. Um, so, for example, um, you know, uh, it can it can really help to have a second set of eyes say, hey, I'm just a, a little bit worried. You don't seem like your usual self. Um, and sometimes that can be a, a little bit easier, you know, when um, somebody's in a depressive phase, um, you know, they're, um, it, it, it might be that they recognize that they are in need of that extra assistance, but um, it's really hard to find the motivation to reach out so you don't actually feel worthy of reaching out for help. And so somebody else saying, this is okay for you to do, let me help you is, um, is really important. Um, talking to somebody who might be experiencing symptoms of hypermania, um, uh, you know, it, it might be a little bit more challenging depending on how well you know that person. And, and what I would kind of recommend those times is um, really respecting the, the person's autonomy, but just letting them know that, you know, if, if things get um, changed, you know, and agreed upon point, um, if I notice this happening for my own comfort, I might have to reach out for, for help. Um, so respecting their autonomy, but also expressing that you have concerns and, and um, seeing what happens. But Victoria, I'd really love to hear what's worked or not worked for you in the past. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it's the what I guess it's not the million dollar question now, but the, the $4.6 billion question or something with inflation. Um, and uh, I think uh, I like that word that you used with an invitation. Um, and so I, I have an acronym called ORS, where it's about observing a person's behavior, um, approaching and asking them and referring them and then supporting them. And depending on the response you get, it can really um, uh, depend, it can determine which and how you use those steps. But the observation is really just uh, observing sort of behavioral changes um, and mentioning um, that instead of sort of, um, so, it, so it's concrete. Um, and then the asking and approaching, I think to some degree is really in asking a person if, if they're open to discussing it. Um, and really reiterating that, you know, I'm, I'm, I really am, um, care about you and I want to be here for you in the way that supports you the best. And if this isn't the way to support you, that's fine. Like I want, you know, it's a, it's a discussion. It's not about uh, an intervention. Um, and making sure that you have refer, refer, or, um, resources to, um, to support a person if they are open. Um, and then uh, being able to support them throughout that process um, if they are. And I guess I like to remind family members that it's um, not a sort of a, a one-time kind of discussion. It's building that rapport and that trust. And it may also be that you're not the person to approach them 
uh, maybe the person that they relate to the most. So that might be a trusted friend. Sometimes family members have a really fraught and tense relationship um, with uh, the individual, depending on how long um, the disruption has been going on. So that's, uh, that's been my experience. And then really understanding, and of course, going in with the most compassionate, non-judgmental kind of um, uh, approach. And one of the other ways I think also is if you're not wanting to sort of call it out uh, and say, you know, um, you know, I've noticed that you've had these changes. I don't know if you feel like you are dealing with depression or bipolar disorder is actually asking a person about their goals and seeing, you know, what might help them move towards their goals. And that can be a problem solving conversation as well. Um, but sometimes it's just about listening. And that's the, that was, that's what opens up the window um, and, uh, and really taking uh, the lead from them, which can be sometimes really uh, frustrating. Um, I know it's probably even frustrating for my husband at times where, you know, I've had one perspective and he sees it in a very different way. And um, he's just being as respectful as possible. And that's what continues to build the rapport. Yeah, I think not having a one and done conversation, but seeing it as a series of um, invitations to connect and check in is, is a great point. They're both great insights, and I'm sure this person is very appreciative. Um, so uh, another question came in, and um, I guess either, either of you could speak to this, but I think we'll draw on your clinical expertise, Emma. Uh, so the person's asking, can counseling actually help with bipolar symptoms? And specifically, they're interested about uh, mania or hypomania symptoms. Yeah, um, absolutely. So um, the first thing I want to mention is counseling. Um, depending on, on where you live in the world, it's a good idea to um, get an idea of uh, what that actually means in terms of somebody's experience and training working with people with different mental health conditions. Um, so, for example, um, where I used to live in Australia, counselling was not a protected term, which meant that anyone could call themselves a counsellor and they may not have actually had um, experience working with people. Um, whereas here in um, British Columbia, um, you can register as a counsellor and to do that you have to show that you've done a particular amount of education and supervised training and that's just important because um, some of the things that we might think intuitively help somebody with various mental health difficulties might not um, so for example a counsellor who's really inexperienced working with bipolar disorder might think that when somebody's coming out of um, a depressed period um, they might reinforce behaviours that are actually hypermania because to them if they're not familiar with it, that looks like a really good sign of improvement. So it's helpful to make sure that the person that you're working with has uh, experience in this area. Um, but definitely counselling can help. Um, uh, there's signs, there's a lot of evidence that different things like family therapy can be helpful. Um, we know that stressful family environments can be uh, a trigger for mood episodes. Um, so if you're um, still at home, it can be helpful to um, get the whole support team involved. Um, but also things like CBT that we often talk about in relation to um, dealing with symptoms of depression can be helpful with hypermania, um, particularly when it comes to challenging some of that, that thinking that Victoria was talking about, like having a lot of excitement and enthusiasm for um, various projects. Uh, 
CBT can teach us the, still, the skills to kind of ask ourselves, mm, is that the right idea for me right now? Are there any potential um, uh, downsides to this plan that I haven't thought about? Um, what can I do to kind of slow down and, and delay this? Um, and things like meditation and having somebody help teach you different relaxation skills can also be really effective. Um, when it comes to somebody in a, in a manic episode, um, doing things like CBT and counseling can be really challenging because um, uh, their attention, their energy levels might not seem that as, as interesting or exciting. Um, but if you've been working with a counselor for a while, they can also be another person in that kind of supportive network like Victoria was talking about that can maybe point out before things get too escalated we might need to, to slow down and, and check in here. Great, uh, thank you so much. And, and this actually ties in, this next question ties in quite closely to what you were just talking about, Emma. So maybe you can expand on it. Both of you can expand on it actually. Uh, so the question is, and this is from a person living with BD, um, how can I tell when I'm just excited as opposed to I'm getting manic? Um, I, I guess it's a matter of telling, distinguishing between when you're excited and when you might be uh, showing signs of entering a hypomania or mania. How do you go about doing that? Um, I'll maybe um, offer Victoria the opportunity to, to speak first on this one and whether she had any um, thoughts on that previous question. Yeah, um, yeah, to the, the previous question around uh, therapy, I think also uh, looking at um, uh, one of the things is raising the bottom of my life in general. So not just looking strictly at symptom uh, management is that if I start to learn how to manage um, my lifestyle in a healthier way, that automatically will uh, reflect in my mental health. So, and it'll start to alleviate some um, symptoms. So uh, an example uh, can be, uh, just learning how to create balance between my work life and my personal life. Um, because oftentimes if I end up becoming, doing sort of um, uh, working for hours on end, uh, that can be a sign of mania or hypomania. So if I'm able to actually manage that or learn skills around um, compartmentalizing it, that can be really helpful. Um, and then, uh, sorry, and what was the, the next uh, question that you had brought up? Oh, about um, excitement versus um, hypomania. I guess I, 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 think, I think actually it was through Crest that I, I heard about this, where excitement is sort of, um, to me, the, um, the clouds in the sky. It's like a, a, an actual, an, an emotion. Um, versus hypomania and mania could be, let's say, the weather system that's happening. And so one lasts longer. So hypomania and mania tend to have um, a longer um, shelf life and also can be more uh, detrimental. Um, so excitement usually pat comes and goes quite quickly, and it usually doesn't necessarily um, result in choices that are reckless. Uh, and what I find though, the hard part is with hypomania, it, it's a, such a fine line because I can be more productive and I can be more creative, 
So I need to be really um, honest with myself that I'm not trying to uh, exacerbate it by a lack of sleep, by um, exercising more or things like that. So I had a great psychiatrist who said, you know, hypomania can be more productive, but you need to be very cognizant of when you're in that state that it's not uh, that you're not doing something um, deliberate to escalate it or that it's not escalating because it can go high. But he said, if you're able to manage it, then um, allow yourself to be in it because I myself sometimes find that it, it sort of has a very short period of time where it's, um, you know, a day or two or maybe even just a few hours. Um, but um, I think that's Probably what I would say is the distinguishing factor is that the length of time that's present. And also it doesn't, uh, the hypomania and mania really affect my thinking a lot more than excitement. Uh, excitement is a sort of an emotional experience versus hypomania and mania really change what I feel like I can do. And my thoughts are racing and things seem completely possible that are really unrealistic. And so the more that I'm able to have that witness to be able to recognize those thoughts, it helps me understand the difference. Yeah, I would say that, um, uh, you know, the, the goal of being well is not to kind of eliminate any kinds of fluctuations in emotion entirely, because um, people are still going to, even though when I talk about life chart, when we kind of start with that flat line, um, that's not really what people's normal everyday experience is. You know, we all feel a bit of excitement in response to positive events and all feel a little bit of a dip in response to negative events. Um, and sometimes becoming a little bit overcautious can, can lead um, people to manage their mood in, the, in unhealthy ways. So if you're really worried about getting too excited, for example, and, and um, cut out all potentially overstimulating activities, that could actually tip things back down towards a, a depression. So it's a really great question. And, you know, it is going to come down to the individual to some extent um, to figure out where's the, um, the, the, what am I comfortable with in terms of the fluctuations in my usual emotions and what might be a sign that I should be um, getting worried and maybe putting some strategies into place. Um, and so, you know, getting used to those early warning signs and reviewing the previous episodes is really important. Um, but one thing that you can kind of um, do to, to test whether it's, um, like Victoria said, uh, um, sorry, I've forgotten the exact kind of metaphor that you used, but, you know, emotions versus moods um, is, we know emotions tend to be triggered by specific events and tend to be relatively quick to pass. Um, and so trying out whether you can um, do a short intervention, like a, a relaxation strategy, um, you know, something that's maybe um, a grounding sensory experience, like um, perhaps taking an evening off to just wind down with something not super stimulating, having a bath, having a, reading a book and a cup of tea. And if that manages to settle your mood back into that range that you're comfortable with, that might be a sign that it was just excitement and um, you know, nothing to be, to be worried about. But if you notice that doing those things to relax and calm down doesn't have an impact and your sleep is starting to get affected, that's probably the, the really big sign that I would be looking out for with, with people um, uh, that, that might be a sign that more heavy duty strategies need to be put in place when, when sleep starts coming into it. 
And I did just notice a, a comment in the chat, which I think is really important, is um, uh, someone was saying that uh, he's understood that um, uh, he or she has understood that hypomania, mania, and depression are both symptoms and they should be managed, not just let go in terms of mania and, and uh, hypomania. And I, I want to clarify that, you know, if you are in that sense of hypomania or mania, it, it, it is about making sure that you can contain it um, and do what you can to um, manage it so that it doesn't escalate. So if, if it made it sound like I was saying, go with it, ride with it, <laughs> that's not what I meant <laughs> at all. Um, it was for me that there's a time where I'm, uh, for me, uh, the ability to leverage it if possible, but with the intent to always making sure that I'm managing it um, responsibly. Yeah, and look, as as um, a psychologist, I would always be a little bit hesitant to even try just containing it within particular boundaries. I think it really relies. Uh, you would have, you know, it's really important for people to have um, that that toolkit of self management and relaxation strategies in place um, because it, it can be tempting to um, try to work within the boundaries of that, but you know, from speaking to people, um, we do often find that it, it can be a really subtle shift from this is under control to this is not under control. And yeah. once yeah. you get out of that containment zone, it's really hard to get it back in. Um, yeah. And, and, the, and the more that I've actually done self-management for it, the less I go into hypomania. Like I don't recall the last time. And certainly in mania, to me, there's, it's always about finding a way to um, reduce that symptom and stuff. So, yeah. Great. Thanks to both of you for that. Um, so I, I'm getting a few variations of this same question from different people. Uh, so I'm going to pose it. It's sort of a two-part question. And uh, they, they wanted some help uh, understanding the differences between bipolar disorder type 1 and type 2, and also your thoughts about whether there's a third type. Apparently, there's discussion about a third type of bipolar disorder existing. I'm, I'm happy to have a, um, a go at that initially. Um, so earlier when I was talking about the um, mania and hypermania spectrum, um, those actually have pretty um, significant implications for um, what subtype of bipolar disorder we might decide is most appropriate for an individual. So somebody who has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder type one has experienced at least one full threshold um, experience of mania. Um, and so that would be those symptoms that are at a really significant intensity that, um, you know, your ability to go to school and work and maintain relationships is quite significantly impacted. Um, or there's um, psychosis involved, or you have to go to um, hospital to actually have that kind of um, con contained and um, uh, for um, safety reasons. Um, so that's bipolar disorder type one. And um, you might notice that the, the diagnosis there only requires a, an episode of mania, despite it being a bipolar disorder diagnosis. And that's a kind of um, one of perhaps the controversies that Stephen is alluding to. Um, for a diagnosis of bipolar disorder type two, you've only ever experienced hypermanic episodes. So you experience symptoms of um, on that mania spectrum, 
um, but they've never gotten so severe or intense to necessitate hospitalization. Um, and the amount that they impact your um, functioning is not as uh, severe. Um, and you've also experienced uh, periods of at least one episode of depression. Um, now, the exact point on that line where mania becomes hypermania um, is up for debate. And the DSM really gives us a broad guideline that it doesn't involve hospitalization or psychosis and it doesn't severely impact um, functioning. Um, so it is, it is kind of a, like I mentioned at the start, a guide to understanding these different kinds of presentations. Um, and I think the third type that you're referring to, Stephen, might be psychothymia. So um, it, people who have experiences of depression and hypermania that are never so intense as to warrant a full um, uh, diagnosis of bipolar disorder type 2, um, but they tend to be a little bit more persistent. Um, so people tend to not have uh, periods in a, in a given year where they are without those symptoms for a very long time. So it really kind of illustrates, I think, the, the fact that bipolar disorder is, um, uh, it's on a continuum with uh, normal fluctuations in um, mood and emotion um, that we're still kind of coming to understand better and refine our approach to categorizing over time. I don't know, Victoria, whether you had any um, thoughts you wanted to add there? Not really, just because I've been diagnosed with bipolar one. So um, my experience really has been with mania, psychosis and depression. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think you explained it really well. Great. Uh, thanks. Um, so I think we have time for one last question. And uh, I'm going to ask you, um, basically, it's a, it's a question from an individual who is now, they're on medications for their bipolar disorder, and uh, they're stable, they've stabilized on them. And they're now wondering, they're, they're trying to build a, a feeling of community again. Um, and how a person uh, in such a state can actually try to build uh, their social environment out uh, now that they're somewhat stable. Um, so building their social network relating to what Victoria was talking about in terms of talking to other people with, with bipolar disorder. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More advice in that realm, I think. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's, um, I'll give, uh, a little comment on that, but I think, um, Victoria, with your experience of actually doing that is probably more, more useful to this person. Um, but yeah, the research does show that peer support is really important to um, adjusting and living well with the diagnosis of, of bipolar disorder. Um, and um, uh, potentially some more and more um, uh, peer supporters are being employed through healthcare services. So um, if you're going to a public mental health center, they might be able to put you in contact with somebody. Um, but there's often, um, local chapters of peer support groups like um, the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance is a really big one in North America. Um, I'm not 100% sure what the, the, whether there's a coordinating network in Canada, um, but definitely some, some online resources are the, the place to start. 
Uh, Stephen, was it about expanding your community sort of outside of individuals who have bipolar disorder or people? Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. That, that sense. yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, um, the depression bipolar support alliance is a really, a really good one, um, for people who have bipolar disorder, or depression, the mood disorders association of BC and the Canadian mental health associations, um, all the regional uh, branches, um, have great support groups that are online outside of that. Um, it took me, it was sort of little baby steps because, um, for a long time when I was right out of the hospital, I really thought that I had like a neon sign <laughs> on my forehead saying I've been in the psych ward, loony bin, uh, you know, <laughs> alumni or whatever, pardon them, you know, the <laughs> inappropriate, politically incorrect language. Um, and so it took me a long time. And part of it was a combination of meeting new people, but also reconnecting with previous friends, some friends who had been scared off, um, who I wasn't able to connect with, and then other um, people who actually were, I was still connected with. Um, and so it was really looking at where the um, path of least resistance was and when, um, and also within therapy, getting um, tools and uh, sort of feedback about how I might approach uh, those individuals, um, even role playing in a way of sort of practicing what I might say. So uh, one of the good things was I did have a friend who was really willing to be with me um, through the whole uh, period and um, just being able to hang out and, and watch movies and things like that. Um, and then being willing to sort of go and do more um, sort of social things that were with uh, people that I might not know. So going with a friend, but to a small social gathering. This was obviously pre-COVID, um, you know, for a, whether it's a dinner party or something like that. So, or a, a movie night. Um, and then just practicing my social skills because my confidence was really down. So just giving myself a lot of kindness around that it was really natural to feel shy and um, insecure, um, and then creating those safe spaces where I could practice those skills and peers were the first place and then being able to bridge out of that afterwards. Okay, great. Thanks so much to both of you. And uh, I think we're going to start wrapping up now. Um, thanks to everyone who joined and for your great questions. And of course, to Victoria and Emma for leading such a rich discussion tonight, um, or today or this morning, depending on where you are. Um, and so now we're going to share some resources with you. Uh, so Laura has uh, shared the TalkBD toolkit in the chat with links to resources and upcoming study opportunities that you might want to participate in. And we've included in that toolkit some diagnostic guides, including the one that you're seeing on the screen right now, a workbook, a workbook and some blog posts in the toolkit as well. And this is a patient and family guide that's through the CANMAT organization in, uh, out of Canada great organization. And this is a, a sample image from the bipolar workbook that is also in the in the toolkit uh, that's posted for you. Um, there's a new blog uh, by Raymond Tremblay, which is about how to uh, what he what he didn't know about mania, uh, which I think is uh, really important. Um, another blog about medication and bipolar disorder as well top 10 questions related to that. Uh, I'm sure that'll be of interest to many of you. And upcoming, uh, we're going to have a 48-hour question and answer event online uh, through uh, Reddit 
uh, an Ask Me Anything event on World Bipolar Day, World Bipolar Day on March 30th, 2022. And yeah, and we are, Crest PD is in the process of developing an app to help people with living with bipolar disorder um, manage their, their symptoms and, and condition. And if you are interested in participating in a study or learning more about the app that we're developing, uh, we, we ask you to please uh, consider signing up for the, to participate in that study. We'd love to have you aboard. And this is uh, just a reference to the Crest PD website where there's lots of additional resources you might wanna peruse. And if you wanna sign up for our newsletter, uh, you can do so on that website as well. And yes, on April 12th, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Dr. Emma Morton uh, will also be running Bipolar 102, which is the second part of this event. Um, as I said, there, you, there's no way to cover everything uh, related to an introduction on bipolar disorder in, in a simple one hour thing. So please join us then as well. And uh, just so you know, there are previous, any previous TalkBD Live events have been recorded as this one has and can be viewed online uh, at that URL through YouTube. And so all of them are posted for you to view and listen to as you like. They're also available on Spotify now as, as downloadable podcasts. And you'll notice that when you leave tonight's session that you'll, you'll get a pop-up that asks you to complete a short survey. Uh, we uh, appreciate your feedback on this event and any others you might be attending. And a shout out to our funders and partners, um, all listed here. Too many for me to read in, the, in this time, but uh, we, we're, we're grateful for all their support. And please feel free to follow us, either our website or our social media channels and YouTube channel. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Looking forward to talking more next time. Thanks for joining, everyone. Bye. Bye.